0: Wow. Good morning. <clears throat> my name's Phil Green. For some of you here, you're getting to know us a little bit, uh, slowly getting involved in the ministry here. For many of you, you may just simply recognize myself. You may recognize my wife, Karen. Uh, we've been uh, sitting down here, usually on one side or the other, part way towards the front. Of course, not too close to the front. That's just kind of socially weird. You don't want to sit in the front row, but we're usually back here and We've, we've kind of realized that as we sit in the same spots, we're not getting to know the bulk of you in the back. So we need to mix it up a little bit more and kind of spread ourselves around a, a little bit more to, to get to know all of you as well. Many of you have no idea who I am. <laughs> and that's to be un- understood because we're relatively new here to Overland Hills Church. In fact, we're relatively new to Papillion. We moved to Papillion A week before, everything started shutting down from COVID back in March of 2020, and as we know, that was not a normal year. In August of 2020, we moved to Papillion from Blair. You've heard of Blair, it's just a country mile north. Uh, Of course, if you want to buy a car, it's a little farther than a mile, but anyway, that's where we came from. After visiting several churches in Sarpy County, we really wanted to plug into a church that was in Papillion. We live in Papillion, and we were looking for a church that teaches and lives out the Word of God, and so we settled here uh, at Overland Hills last fall. Just last January, we started the membership class, finished that up in kind of mid-February. We uh, signed the membership covenant, and at the next business meeting, we were accepted into membership here at Overland Hills Church. Karen attends the women's activities. I attend the men's study and men's coffee on Friday morning. We're involved in a care group. We're starting to get involved. Now, why do I tell you all this? It's not just because I like to talk about myself. Of course, most people do, but that's not the point. What I want you to understand this morning is that I come this morning as one of you. I'm just an attender here at Overland Hills Church. Karen and I are part of this local body now of believers. And whether you like it or not, you are now our church family. And as with any family, it's now our opportunity to get to know one another and to begin to love one another. This morning is not a sermon from a pop-in pastor, say that five times, Uh, somebody who just happens to be able to come sometimes and preach a specific message that they want to share with you and then boom, they're off and they're gone. Next week, Karen and I will probably be sitting back here. Maybe we'll be bold enough to venture into a new part, but we're going to continue to be around with you. But I want to share with you this morning something that has been on my heart from God's Word and speak it to you as a family. The more we share life together, the more all of us participate in life together, we will at times disappoint one another. You can't help but be involved with people and not occasionally have them begin to get on your nerves. That's church. That's life as a body. And so I want to look this morning at some of the instruction that God shares with us about how we should be serving and ministering with one another. I want to start, though, first by publicly thanking Pastor John and the other pastor elders for the privilege to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. I don't take it lightly. So pray with me, if you would, please. Father God, we do come before you this morning, and we are here for one grand, great purpose, and that is to worship and adore you. Father, you are the Creator God. And in your infinite love and mercy, you chose to call sinners to yourself. We don't deserve it, but in your love and in your grace, you chose to send your Son into this world to live a perfect life and to die a perfect death. And we thank you for that. And Lord Jesus, we are here this morning to honor and exalt you. You are the head of of the church. You're the head of this local body. And so now we acknowledge our dependence upon you and our desperate need for you to lead and guide and direct. And may you live your life through us as we love and serve one another. And Spirit of God, we depend upon you now. Open your word. Open our eyes and open our hearts to see the great truth that is here burn it into us deeply and help us to love and serve one another father god we love you and we thank you and it's in your son's name we pray amen turn with me if you would to 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 in your bibles 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 and as you're turning there stop in chapter 4 because we're going to get a little bit of the context of what we're going to see in chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I'm going to shamelessly make a little plug for our next adult Sunday school class that's going to be starting just 3 weeks from today. So Bob Atkins has put together a class that he's calling the Tea Room, T because most of the books we're going to be studying all begin with the letter T. So we'll be studying 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd T- Timothy and Titus. And we've also decided to invite Peter for tea. And so when we're done, we're going to do first and Second Peter as well. So that begins three weeks from this morning. So really, really encourage you to come at nine o'clock. Be here on time. We start at nine o'clock, but come and continue to feast upon the Word of God. So First Thessalonians chapter four. Just to give you a little context about what's been going on, Paul only spent a few short weeks in Thessalonica when he planted this particular church. And then Paul was torn away from these young believers. At the end of chapter 3, Paul erupts with praise and thanks to God for the continued faith and love and obedience that these young believers are demonstrating. And then he says here in chapter 4 in verse 1, says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge... Pay attention to those two words because we're going to see them again in chapter 5. We ask and urge. And just like in English, those words both mean to request something, but the second one is a little bit more intense. If you had a friend ask you to come over, well, you might do it depending upon what your schedule was, but if they called and urged you and they said, I urge you to please come over, you would probably drop almost everything to help them out. Same kind of sense here. We ask and urge or exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how, to, how you ought to walk and please God. And then when they talk about walking, they don't mean just physically walking around. Obviously what they're implying here is how you would live your life. As you received instruction from us on how you should walk and be pleasing to God, how you should live your life. He goes on, just as you are doing... He acknowledged that these young believers are walking obediently. As you are doing that, he says, so you do, uh, uh, that you do so more and more. Or some translated it as, that you would excel still more. Like a faithful parent or a good coach. Paul now here is telling these young believers, I know you're doing well, and praise God for that. And you love the Lord, and you love his word, and you love one another. But I want to exhort you, do more. Do more. And that's what I want to do as well this morning. We've been impressed with what we've seen here on what the Lord is doing. But I want to encourage you, based on God's Word this morning, to excel still more. Keep doing more and more. I want to pause for a second before we turn to chapter 5. Let me remind everyone that this morning we are going to be looking at a lot of instructions about what believers should be doing to faithfully serve Christ in His church. This morning's message is not instructions on how to become a follower of Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and unsure regarding your relationship with Jesus, it is a relationship that has to be built On faith, on trust in what Christ has accomplished for you. You do not become a Christian by doing the things that we're going to be looking at this morning. Once you've come to know Christ, these are the things that He obediently wants you to do. So, again, if you're unsure about that relationship with Christ, I'll say more about it at the end, but don't get confused. This is not how you become a Christian. This is because now you are a Christian and you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So again, over to chapter 5, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 12 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 18. You're going to see three sets of instructions here that we should be following more and more, that we should be excelling in more and more. These three sets of instructions are for every believer in the church. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what you should be doing more and more. Let me give the three sets of instructions for you. Number one, we'll see this morning, instruction regarding the body's interactions with our leaders. Instructions regarding the body's interactions with our leaders. That's verses 12 to 13. Number number two, we'll see instruction regarding our interactions with each other. As members of the body, how we interact or should interact with each other, verses 14 and 15. And finally, number three, instruction regarding the attitude and perspective we should have in life as followers of Christ. Again, instruction regarding the attitude and perspective that we should have in life as followers of Christ, verses 16 to 18. And I'll read each section as kind of we deal with it instead of the whole thing. So, verses 12 and 13, our first point. Again, instructions regarding the body's interactions with our leaders, verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. As Paul started chapter 4, so he begins with this section that we ask you, brothers, we ask you, Now keep in mind, this is not directed just to men, so even though he uses that word, brothers, he really is addressing everyone in the church. And this is a divine request, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to behave a certain way with a specific group of individuals. First we're going to deal with who he's talking to, what group do we deal with, and then how we should behave. Well, who's the who that he's addressing here? We see that in the end of verse 12. He describes them as those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. They labor among you. They work hard on your behalf. They are over you in the Lord. They have some kind of authority over you in the church in Christ. And what is it that they do? They admonish you. They admonish you. They warn you. They challenge you. And this is an interesting word here that Paul uses. It's only used a few times in the New Testament. And it's a word that really emphasizes to warn or challenge the the thinking. It it deals with you rationally thinking about things. In fact, we bring this word over from Greek into English as the word neuthetic. And if you know anything about biblical counseling, there's kind of a segment of biblical counseling out there called Newthetic Counseling. And basically, it's all about challenging your mind and heart with the truth of God to get you to think about what God's will is for you. These are individuals who admonish us. Well, who's the Apostle Paul referring to? Of course, I think we would all agree. It's our church leaders. It's our elders and overseers and pastors. And those are all synonyms in the New Testament. Keep your finger here and turn over to Hebrews chapter 13, if you would. Hebrews chapter 13. And look with me, Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Hebrews 13 and 17. In fact, you might slip your bulletin in here because we're going to come back to it a little bit later this morning. But notice what he says at the beginning of Hebrews 13, 17. He says this, Obey your leaders. And submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Our elders, our overseers, our pastors, they are leaders, and they keep watch over us on our behalf. And they do it on behalf of Christ, appointed by the Holy Spirit, recognized by the church and they ultimately will give an account for this they are our leaders now like i said maybe leave something here turn back to 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 we'll be back to see the second part of this verse a little bit later so who are these individuals that paul's addressing it's again the leaders of the church back to 1st Thessalonians 5 how then should we deal with these individuals these leaders of our church he kind of splits it up between the middle of verse 12 and the first part of verse 13. The middle of verse 12, after the, we ask you, brothers, that you would respect those, who then he goes on and describes their work, that we would respect them. You know, respect, I'm, I'm okay with that translation, but others have it maybe in a, in a different way that, that somehow gives it a little bit more of the beautiful nuance that is in this word. Other translations have as that you would recognize them or acknowledge them or even appreciate them. It literally means to know. If you looked at the actual word that Paul uses here, it's one of the Greek words for to know. And there are two primary words that are oftentimes used in the New Testament for to know. There's the Greek word gnosko, which means to know something as you study it. And you learn about it. That's kind of the typical way we would talk about knowledge and how you would know things. But then there's this other word, Uda. Uda. And this kind of a knowledge is knowledge that is gained by seeing and perceiving something deeply from, and then therefore gaining a personal experience with it. It suggests fullness of knowledge and a full personal understanding. I think that's important in this passage because of what he's trying to tell us, the church, when it comes to our leaders. He says you need to know your leaders. You need to know them intimately so that you can therefore do the things now he wants us to do. Members of the body of Overland Hills Church, let me ask you a question. How well do you know your leaders? How well do you know them? Really know them? And not just some of them, I mean all of them. I mean, every week, are cute little pictures are right here in the bulletin. Uh, and they're here for a good reason. Not just so that you might recognize them. This gives you an opportunity to begin a process of to get to know them. And the burden, my friends, is yours and it's mine to know these men, to know what makes them tick, to understand their hearts, to know what excites them about ministry, and to know what worries them about ministry. The more you get to know these men, the more you will be willing to be gracious to them and kind to them when they disappoint you. And they will disappoint you at times because they are men as well. But if you know them and you know their passions and you know their desires and you know their interest in ministry, you will be able to be long-suffering with them And I want to urge you that you need to take the initiative to get to know them. Have them over. Have their families over. Talk with them about ministry. Pray with them. It's our obligation to know them deeply so that we can then go on to do what it says in verse 13. So I ask you in verse 12 that you would know these who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and they admonish you so that you could, verse 13, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. That we would esteem them, consider them and judge them very highly. This is an interesting word. Partly because of why, uh, who he uses it for here. He's talking about our leaders in the church. And he says, I want you to esteem them very highly. The Apostle Paul also uses this word in Ephesians 3 verse 20, talking about Christ, when he says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. God, who with His power can super abundantly do everything that we ask Him to do, Paul uses that same term, that you would esteem your leaders super abundantly in love. But you can't do that if you don't know them. But when you do know them, you can give them that honor and love that they deserve. And why do they deserve it? At the end of verse 13 or the middle of that, or the end of that first phrase in verse 13, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The labor that they put in on your behalf. Do you know how often these men pray for you? Do you know the care of souls that they put in to oversee this ministry? You should know that. You should understand that. And you should honor them because of that. You don't honor the position. You don't honor the title. You're honoring the work that they do on your behalf. And one final phrase that Paul has here in this first section, and he says at the end of verse 13, Be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. Now you might think, this phrase, in light of what's just been said um, about our leaders and about the potential conflict that can can exist in the church, doesn't make a lot of sense. But it does in the context of of knowing them than in the midst of potential conflict. His ultimate goal is be at peace among yourselves, body and leaders. And the more you know them, and the more you honor them, and praise them and thank them for their work and their love on behalf of the church, the more you will be able to be at peace among yourselves. I said we were going to go back to Hebrews 13, so flip back there real quick if you would. Hebrews 13, verse 17, and again just notice the last phrase. He had talked about these individuals who oversee us and who will give an account, and he says this at the end of verse 17, let them do this with joy... And not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you, to the body. Ultimately, as a member of the body, we are looking out for ourselves when we submit and love and respect our leaders. Life will be much better for all of us when we do that. And that's the challenge for us. And it will go much better for us in the church when we give them the honor that is due them. So back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Item number 2, instruction number 2 that we see here, verses 14 to 15. Again, instruction regarding our interactions with each other. And we're going to see five specific things that he's going to reference for us this morning. Verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone." And again, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 4, in the beginning of the previous section in chapter 5, verse 12, so Paul begins this section with a divinely inspired request. But he uses this slightly stronger term that we also saw back in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, now, not just we ask you, we urge you. Now here, body, we urge you. And again, this is not directed just to men in the church, brothers into the church, but everyone. And I mean everyone, male and female. But now he's talking to the body about the body interacting with itself. I thought long and hard about, you know, at this point in the message, how to kind of try to get your attention. You know, it's kind of one of those things. It's like, okay, you know, listen up here. This is very, very important for us as the body as now we interact together. These instructions are not just for the leadership in the church to do. These instructions are not just for teachers in the church to do. These instructions are for all of us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and this is your local church or wherever your local church is, this is what God wants you to be doing in your fellowship, demonstrating these things. Believers, saints in the body have all been given spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit for the mutual edification and growth of the church. That's why we did the scripture reading that we did this morning from 1 Peter talking again about the gifts that all of us have, and we are to use them now to the benefit of one another. So we need to work with one another these ways. Now this this interaction that we'll see described this morning probably most often occurs through the routine schedule of life together in the church. This is not necessarily a formal activity, These are the informal things that Christians do for one another and to one another. It happens in care groups. It happens as you're serving in ministry together. These are the opportunities that you will have one with another. And let me use this plug then to encourage you. You need to be getting involved. If your involvement in church as a follower of Christ is that you come to worship and that's it, you don't have opportunities to do this, and you don't have opportunities for others to do it to you. And we all need these things done to us, and we need to be doing them. Again, these are, this is a divine request inspired by the Holy Spirit to interact in a certain way with professing believers who are struggling in specific ways, and we're going to first talk about the struggle in each of these and then the appropriate way to respond. And you'll see that depending upon the issue, there's an appropriate way to respond. He says in the first one here in verse 14, we urge you now again, brothers and sisters in Christ, urge you to admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. ESV translates it as idol here. Others have it as undisciplined or unruly or disorderly. As Paul uses it with the Thessalonians, there evidently were some in the church who were deadbeats, we'd call them today. They were unwilling to work, unwilling to take care of themselves, and they were expecting others in love just to look out for them and to take care of them. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul reminds the Thessalonians how hard he and his men with him in ministry worked when they were with them. That was the example for the church. They should have learned that lesson, but evidently they did not learn that lesson. And so this is what he says just over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. So if you want to flip over there a couple pages, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 12 say the following. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 12. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking, living his life in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, act like we did, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil. And labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right as apostles; they, they could have asked to be put up, but they wanted to give them an example. He says that the rest of verse nine, but to give you to give in you ourselves an example to imitate. Verse ten: For when we were with you, we would give you this command. And again, not a suggestion; it's a command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. After you're hungry for a while, maybe you'll figure out that working's a good thing. Verse 11, For we hear that some among you walk or live in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So back to chapter 5 of 1st Thessalonians 1. This was a problem in the church, people who were idle, people who were not working hard, not taking care of themselves. And at times in the church even today, we have people who are idle, undisciplined, deadbeats. Sometimes it's financially, other times it's just kind of goofballs I mean they they just don't take care of the responsibilities in life that they have and brothers and sisters in Christ what is your obligation not the leaders not the teachers what is your obligation back to first Thessalonians 5 again he says in verse 14 admonish them admonish the idol again same word admonish that we saw earlier when it was talking about the elders admonishing the body, speaking to people in a way that would challenge their thinking and challenge their activities. Someday, if it hasn't already happened, you are going to be admonished by someone else. That's a good thing. But let me tell you, it's not an easy thing. It's not easy to be the admonisher. It's not easy to be Admonished, but it's essential if we love one another. Brief story about two friends of mine: one named Paul, one named Ed, that we've known for many, many years. Paul was a friend in college, and as I grew up, I was kind of the um, pfft, oh, what would you say? I was the uh, goof off in class. You know, I was the one who was always looking for the cute little thing to say, the funny little you know thing to chime in as. Uh, and so, as I grew up older, I would tend to just kind of play off of people's stupid little things. And so, when they did something stupid, I would point it out real quick and say, good job, loser, that was stupid, you know, ah, ha ha everybody laughs, right? We, we love to play those kinds of things. And in college, Paul, my Christian friend, came to me and pointed out to me, that is not a good thing. That is not what Christians do. And as a young believer, I said thank you for sharing that with me and promptly forgot what he said. (laughs) Actually, I remembered what he said, did not apply it in my life at all. Several years later, Karen and I are married, we're involved in a church in Lincoln, in a home Bible study group, my friend Ed takes the time to talk to me about the same thing. And by the grace of God, he burned that into my heart. And he reminded me that if I have any desire to be effective in ministry, I can't be that kind of guy. And Ed loved me enough to admonish me and to set me straight. And I praise God for that. That's what we do in the church That's our job with one another. So when you encourage a brother or sister in Christ who is being idle, undisciplined, immature, love them enough to approach them in private and admonish them with the Word of God. That's what good churches do. Going on in verse 14. Number two, we are to encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted here literally just means (laughs) small-souled. They have a little soul at that point in time. They're, They're beaten down with life. They're discouraged with life. And notice you deal with these people differently than you do with the idol. Be honest. Life can be very, very hard. Especially for some people. Now, for the vast majority of us, especially in this country, we are super abundantly blessed. We don't know what it's really like compared to what other people have to put up with around the world. Previous generations have had to put up with around the world. But even in our culture, people can easily get to be faint-hearted. Job challenges, health challenges, the tragic death of a loved one. All can crush people. And then you throw in ministry challenges, ministry frustrations, conflicts in the church. All of these things happen regularly. And we, as members of the body, need to be looking out for one another. And when we see that happen, we need to have the compassion to do what He says here, And that is that we would encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. To comfort them and to console them. This word is used in John chapter 11 when people were consoling Mary and Martha after the death of their brother Lazarus. Life is not easy, again, sometimes. And as we go through life together as a body, We need to be prepared to comfort one another. Romans 12 verse 8 talks about the spiritual gift of mercy. It says, The one who does acts of mercy do it with cheerfulness. And that cheerfulness rubs off then on those who are small-souled, who are faint-hearted. They're encouraged by that. Just as we saw with those gathering around Mary and Martha, oftentimes when we gather with those who are weak-souled, it's not really about what you say. It's about the fact that you're there with them, comforting them, encouraging them, praying for them. Be sensitive to the people around you. But again, if all of you do is show up on Sunday morning, you won't know any of that. You have to be involved enough so that you know when people are suffering and when you know those who are, at that time, faint-hearted so that you can minister to them. He goes on, number three, in verse 14, to help the weak. Help the weak. The weak. It's literally, again, without strength. It's the word strength with the not A in front of it. Those who do not have strength, they're feeble, they're lacking strength. And sometimes this is used for bodily strength, but oftentimes, again, it's used in the New Testament about spiritual strength. In in fact, Romans 5, 6 uses this word and says, For while we were still weak, helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. There are people in our midst who are weak. Some physically, and yes, we should be prepared to help them, but there are others who are spiritually weak with sinful habits that are hard to break. They're weak, brothers and sisters, and we need to act in an appropriate way. Now again, if it was me, I'd be right back to... uh, admonish them, sorry, because that's what I tend to do. That's not what the apostle says here. He doesn't say admonish the weak. He says help. Help the weak. For many, again, they are crushed by their sin and they don't know what to do about it. It bothers them but they're unsure of how to get themselves out. They are weak, and we are called to help them. And this is an interesting word, help, because it literally means to devote yourself to or to hold on to something. And that's what these people need. They need us to come alongside of them and stick with them through the problem, through the challenge, and help them to grow and master it. The body of Christ should be a healing place for those who are broken and weakened by sin and willing to acknowledge that. There are some who are involved with sin who will fight and resist, and there's another process that we go through for those. But for these individuals who are struggling with sin and acknowledge it, We come alongside them to help them. Jesus himself demonstrated this with sinners that he came across. And I love the passage in Matthew 12, verse 20, where Jesus quotes about himself from Isaiah 42, 3, where it says, A breezed rood he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. I mean, just think of the imagery there. A bruised reed. We, we know how flimsy reeds are. I mean, the wind barely blows, and they break and get knocked over. But Christ is so caring and so compassionate, and we should be the same way, that even a bruised reed, we're not prepared to break. And a smoldering wick, that candle that's about ready to go out, and, and you're walking with it, and it's you know, you're, you're worried, that smoldering wick we will not quench out. Help them. Help them. Don't gossip about them. Don't tell others about them. Help them. But again, you can't help if you don't know what's going on. Finally, at the end of verse 14, he says, Be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. And just a quick note, the word them is not in the original And unfortunately, may here imply in the ESV some kind of a limitation to the all. Literally, I think the best is just be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. And patience is long-suffering. You learn to put up with a lot from people. And in the church, you're going to have to deal with a lot. But we're called to put up with one another. As 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 uh, begins, love is patient and kind. Love is patient and kind. And while we deal with all kinds of people in the body of Christ, the body deals and as the body deals with us, the crown jewel of our interactions is love. And love is patient with one another. And we too must learn to be patient with all. Finally, he ends in verse 5, our fifth one here for this particular section. See that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And we're going to pick up the pace here a little bit as we wrap this one up and look at the next section. Again, I think it's fairly explanatory what he's talking about here. Don't treat, don't return evil for any evil that you receive. Always seek to do what is good for others. Reminds me of Matthew 5 verses 43 to 45 when Jesus said that you have heard it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy treat those who treat you bad just as badly but I say to you love your enemies pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. And one note here in verse 15 he starts off by saying see to it that no one does this. Interesting. The instruction to the body is not only that we not do these things, but it is our job to make sure that others are not doing this as well. It's part of that admonition, part of that coming alongside others and help them, that when you see others who tend to lash out, you would take the time then to sit down with them and speak to them and pray with them about what maturity looks like. The testimony of the church of God, the testimony of the people of God is at stake. And so we should see to it that no one does these things. Finally, to wrap it up this morning, item number three, in verses 16 to 18, instructions regarding the attitude and perspective that we should have in life. And it's short and it's sweet. He says in verse 16 to 18, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, three important things to note here. Number one, notice how short and again, all encompassing this is. There's an action and a time frame for each of these things. And he says, Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Rejoice, pray give thanks even i can memorize that i mean <laughs> that should be easy for all of us rejoice pray and give thanks in the time frame always without ceasing and in all circumstances always rejoice pray give thanks always number 2 this is one of those rare passages in the New Testament where it specifically declares, this is the will of God for you. I remember as a young adult just being frustrated, God, what is your will for my life? Send a postcard, please. You know, uh, we're, we're never sure what it is you want us to do. This is clear. This is God's will for you. This is God's will for me. Rejoice, pray, Give thanks, always. But point number three to remember in this area is that rejoicing in giving thanks does not mean that we enjoy everything, that we like everything that happens, or that everything is good that happens, even in God's sight let me modify that a little bit. We've got a sovereign God who loves His people and works all things for good. But the individual things themselves may not be good. When my father died three and a half years ago, that was not good, in one sense. But in another because he was a follower of Jesus Christ, he'd lived a full life, the Lord had used him in multiple ways over the generations, and he suffered just a short period of time. That was good. I can rejoice and give thanks that God was gracious and merciful in his life. An example recently of the condo collapse in Florida. Oh, I'm a Christian, what do I do with that? What if I had a family member that was in that? I'm supposed to rejoice and pray and give thanks? Yes. Yes. In its own unique way, yes. Jesus, before Lazarus's tomb again, wept. And then when he prayed, he starts by saying, Father, I give you thanks in this arena that you hear me. And I say this verbally so that all those around me will now hear It's about trust. It's about confidence. That's why we rejoice, pray, and give thanks, always. Because we are confident in our sovereign God who is in control and He promises that He's working all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. The Apostle Paul modeled this himself. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. After he'd been beaten, thrown into prison... Unsure about his future, at midnight, it says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, it doesn't say, you know, rejoicing and giving thanks, but usually that kind of goes along with singing hymns, right? I mean, they just kind of well up in you when you're singing those things. You're, you're thanking God for His goodness. You're rejoicing in what He is doing, even when life is not particularly fun. So this attitude and this perspective are only possible if you understand and rest in the promises of God and you know that He will faithfully keep those promises. And when you do and you're focused on that and you're not focused on today, you're focused on the future and you're looking forward to what it is that Christ has in store for you, you can then agree with Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And I rejoice in that. And I give thanks because of that and because of God's great love for us. Romans 8, the end of chapter 8, reminds us that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And we give thanks for that. So fellow Overland Hills members, these are three sets of instructions that we should excel in more and more until Christ returns. How we interact with our leaders and especially knowing them intimately enough that we can rejoice and see their work and their heart. Number two, our interactions with one another and using the sensitivity and the wisdom that comes through maturity to deal with one another in appropriate ways. And then finally, number three, our attitude and perspective when we rejoice, we pray, and we give thanks always because that's what God deserves. Well, as I said at the beginning of the message, though, if you are here this morning, and you are unsure regarding your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I beg you, I beg you this morning, do not leave until you get this resolved. Today is the day. You will not go to heaven by trying to do these three things that we've talked about. You go to heaven by putting your faith and your trust and your confidence in Jesus Christ and all that He has already accomplished for you on the cross. Come to Him by faith. Turn your life over to Him. Follow Him now. And then join us in this great endeavor as we strive to be obedient to God. Pray with me. Father God, we do want to come before you this morning and thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you not only are transforming us individually, but you have made us members of a local body and you've given us leadership in that body. And so help us now with these great tasks to esteem highly those who work on our behalf and to know them so that we can honor them. Help us to love one another and commit to serve one another, to be intimately involved enough to to do those tough things, those hard things that need to be done at times, all so that we can grow and mature and be the people that you want us to be. And Father, through it all, give us the grace so that we would rejoice, that we would pray, and that we would give thanks to you for your care for us it's in your son's great name we pray.